it's one thing to ingest in information. It's one thing to structure data. It's one thing to, to build a tool that helps you analyze it. It's another to make it deeply intuitive and understandable to the people who, who need it. This is a better product original series focused on the power of data and more specifically, how to use data to inform product strategies. I'm Christian. And I'm Anna. All right, you all are in for quite the treat for this episode. And what I love about this is that Ellie, our community manager who handles all of our guest outreach, didn't even know about the connection this guest has to Anna. That's right. Kendra Clark is the Senior Vice President of Data Science and Product Development at Sparks and Honey and my former college roommate. As you all get to know Kendra, she shares how she happened to find herself in marketing after deciding to leave a PhD program. It kind of began this journey that has very much spanned marketing product and and what has become very much a data science practice um, for me. Uh, I've spent the last almost 13 years at this point where I've been in various roles at various organizations, uh, really sitting at the juncture of data science and product. I think it'd be helpful for our listeners to hear Kendra explain what exactly her role looks like. So on the one hand, I'm uh, building models and tuning algorithms and, and really trying to be kind of the vision and architect behind how we solve certain data problems. And then on the other, very much focused on how we build products that helps people analyze data uh, in different ways, how it helps them scrutinize what's happening in the world or, or in uh, their data sets and in various uh, capacities and helps them use that information to make better decisions, make better strategy. And one more thing, what does Sparks and Honey even do? You are so thoughtful today, thinking about our listeners. I mean, you don't have to act like it's uh, abnormal. I always care about our listeners. Whatever you say. Sparks and Honey is a very is a relatively unique uh, organization in that uh, it is an organization that is deeply focused from a consulting capacity, largely, not necessarily on what's already happening within an organization, but on bringing kind of an outside view of what's happening in the world to an organization. So uh, the consulting side of the the practice focuses a lot on questions of, you know, what am I missing? And so we work with a lot of executive leaders to say, okay, so, you know, you know your business as it stands right now. You have a a fantastic understanding of your competitive set. Um, What we bring to the table is an understanding of where the world is going. And so now about, I mean, a little over four years ago, I took, uh, I started taking phone calls about uh, this potential job in data science, uh, where my job would be to come into a consultancy and figure out how to quantify culture. And when I say culture, I mean, not just organizational culture, but like, what do people care about in the world right now? What are they spending time on? What's taking up a lot of space in their brains? And then how is this changing and impacting consumer behavior? And so we already had a consulting practice, which was uh, well-established. And I was brought in about four years ago to develop a data science and product practice and really take the data that the organization had been kind of collecting a little bit here and there and label it according to what we're seeing happen. And then basically, how do we then make it really easy for people who are not data scientists to access that information? Now, she just mentioned Q. Christian, care to break that down for our audience? Uh, no, let's just jump in and let her tell us about it. Q became the outgrowth of, hey, you know, we have this data, but it takes too much training and too much expertise to really access it, interrogate it, and make it useful. How do we 
begin to build a tool. And I would say begin to build a tool because I, I look at product as very like evolutionary process, right? So how do we begin to build a tool that democratizes this information that, that really makes it as flexible and accessible as possible for, you know, feeding design thinking exercises, for feeding creative brainstorming, for feeding uh, strategic tactic making. I'm looking at the site too, and I'm going to read this. Q uses a robust data pipeline of cultural signals and validates it through AI-powered scoring and contextualizing tools to turn months of laborious and costly research into hours of analysis. So now that I have you on this, I want to ask what I would ask reading that. Can you give me a real world example? So we work with a lot of different types of clients um, across a lot of different industries. One of the things that is true both within our consultancy at Sparks and Honey, but uh, within a lot of advertising organizations, and then also true of, of a lot of the clients that we work with directly, you as a, a strategist, uh, as somebody who is tasked with understanding the world and finding insights and helping you know, drive strategic vision for a marketing campaign or for a product pipeline, uh, or for a myriad of other things, you need to get smart on any topic extremely fast, right? So uh, about a year and a half ago, I had a client who said, hey, we are terrified of cancel culture. What is going on here? Rather than, you know, going to Google and like reading a couple of articles on the internet, rather than uh, maybe reading a paper here or there, the promise of Q is basically that we ingest tons of articles on the internet. We ingest tons of social media data. We ingest tons of data from all over the globe, structure it in a way that basically derive other information out of it so that as best as possible, you're saying, all right, cancel culture. What, what is this about? And you very quickly are able to interrogate a bunch of different directions because we've collected thousands or tens of thousands or ultimately millions of documents related to what's happening around a specific phenomenon. So kind of any question that you have, you can quickly get answers that are well-rounded coming from a bunch of sources. So yeah, smart on any subject pretty fast. I think the first thing I want to follow up with is, so the idea that there's this, there's all this data and it's really hard for the lay people to kind of access and, and get into, and you, know, you don't have to know how to write queries. It's like, you don't even know how to ask the machine how to give you what it can give you. I think it's a pretty common kind of thing we hear in the data world. So let's talk a little bit about, especially because you sit at that intersection of data and product and product is all about taking complex ideas and making them very accessible and intuitive and easy to do. Whereas data, you know, obviously like overlaps Venn diagram. Talk to me a little bit about that process. I think that the the first thing to say is just like, it's got to be iterative. It's always like the process to, there is a first a translation process, right? Where you just as a person have to say, okay, so what is it that I'm looking for? What, what's going on here? And, and there's, and the biggest part of my job is always kind of translation back and forth between, okay, so here is the like, the data answer. And here is how we translate this into, uh, into something that makes sense to somebody who is not particularly numerate, who is not particularly focused on on data and interrogating and understanding it. So there's like the layer of it that's just translation, right? But then when we're talking about the product, like building a product that actually enables that kind of translation, it's got to be iterative because one, like we're not going to get it right the first time ever. Like we're just not. And so, and almost I would argue that like the way that I think about product is that it's almost better sometimes to miss a bit maybe not wholly, but like uh, you can improve on that. 
Like if we did do something perfectly out of the gate, there would be nothing to improve on. There would be no rough edges to, to figure out how to, to solve against. Um, and so it's treated in a way that's very iterative. So, you know, it, nothing is kind of a first pass. It'll take a few, especially when we're talking about actually enabling relatively complex analyses, like it should be an evolutionary process to get to a final state that that really works. And I, and I would say that like, we're not, we're certainly not perfect where we are right now. We're miles and miles beyond where we were two years ago, which is when we first rolled out the Q interface and people really started, really started using it. But, you know, we should be in a wholly different place in two years because we've already learned so much and we'll learn so much more. And then kind of the, the last thing is that I think the biggest learning on and on and on has been around training. Like we ultimately have a software as a service platform. And so, you know, we have this SaaS platform that is not necessarily super intuitive. So, so you have to figure out how this tool works with, you know, the day-to-day work processes that somebody, somebody has, the, that somebody uh, is used to. And you have to figure out how to marry what we're doing and what, what we're enabling with that work process, one. And then, you know, there's the actual like training portion and maybe the, the learning management system that goes with that or, you know, the, the kind of training staff that, that goes with that. And then kind of the ongoing guidance and platform too. Um, so you have kind of from a, from a very kind of applied product and the, the kind of tracking and, and evolution and iteration and, and testing and learning that, that we're doing to, to improve the product. And also like we have a really necessary group of people um, who are very focused on our user base and how one, we, we fit need kind of where it is as best as possible, but, but two, you know, how do we, we have you know, this amazing ability to kind of collect ongoing user research so like, where are the other places that we are potentially not matching work process as is? Where, where are the, the potential opportunities here? Um, and so there's also this kind of amazing ongoing feedback that is necessary, uh, one, um, but two also like very much enables that, that ability for us to evolve. You mentioned training was a big learning for you. And that's, a, that's always been interesting to me because I started in software in 2007 and we had like a whole team that handled training and then we had technical documentation and a lot of those teams like really gone down with in terms of investment for software because we're changing the way software should be used you should be able to start using it right away they don't have the documentation people post videos on youtube all these sorts of things but i can maybe appreciate for what you're describing that you probably do need some training because you're dealing with something a little bit more complex and then maybe like outside of your users daily workflow so i'd love to understand what do you do to handle training? How do you uh, teach your, your users how to actually utilize your platform, how to understand what it can do for them? We have, I mean, part of that, the answer to that is we have a training staff, right? And so a lot of times we'll wind up providing uh, some, some additional guidance and, and where absolutely we have gone through a lot of the, the same kinds of things career-wise, it sounds like where as software has gotten you know, much more intuitive, the need for specific training has has declined tremendously. Part of this is probably that we're we're still relatively early stage, but part of it is also like the the altitude and specificity with which we're sometimes uh, we're sometimes operating. We also wind up doing some additional customization sometimes depending on client needs, um, building custom machine learning models, building potentially custom tools into the product, and and that's also a place where like 
I would say that training and product are really incredibly intertwined because we have kind of the, we have our client success team that's very focused on like codifying and understanding what the business need is and what they're used to right now. And that really does help smooth the way for us considerably in terms of figuring out how to build what we need to build to, you know, to whatever use case we need to uh, in a way that is quickly accepted and understood. I will also say that the thing that is most interesting probably about the training is that a lot of times it's less training in terms of how to use the tool um, and, you know, where to click and whatever else, because like the tool itself should be incredibly intuitive. It's more training people how to think about and digest information. I would say that one of the things that happens with a lot of, a lot of data analysis tools of various kinds. One of the things that that comes up there is like, okay, so I can see all of these things. I can interrogate all of these things. That's, that's less my question. It is more a question of like bridging and translating. How do I make sense of this? And how do I translate this to the work that I need to do? It's more about kind of teaching people how to bridge that connection than it is about teaching people how to use a specific interface this is this is really interesting and it like it's reminding me i was reading this article and i can't remember and can't cite which is great but it was like kind of these like little thought experiments about technology and one thing it was talking about is that you know technology a lot of the work is done to hide the complexity of technology and to hide the incredible things it's doing on the back end so a person can just like push a button and have an output um but it was like kind of arguing like why not why not show more of the complexity and and show kind of the the amazing thing that you're able to accomplish and i think by almost like unabashedly leaning into training you're kind of saying you user kind of need to shift your mental model a little bit to use this product right and to get the things that you need, which I think in, in that, like that way of thinking about product is very, very different, especially in the SaaS model. And what we hear, I think most companies are like, got to get rid of training. We got to see, we got to like bring it down and scale it back. But I think that's just a really different perspective on it. Yeah. And I mean, I will say like, it's possible that we'll be at a, a different we'll have a different view in a year or two when we're at a slightly different stage than we are now. Part of the biggest difficulty there is that it's it's not the tool itself that's the problem. It's how people metabolize information. And if you lack a certain amount of, of information from the outset, it's it's kind of impossible to, to bridge the gap and make it up down the road, right? And so we're making a lot of assumptions a lot of times about the ways that people are are already kind of pre-trained, but I think that you know there there are certain degrees to to what we're doing that's really around future of work, right? And really, it's more change management than it is about product at times, where it's it's about how do you how do you make sure that as best as possible we are keeping pace with where we need to be and how and where we need to understand things and how are we enabling versus focusing on answering the question directly in front of us. Like we're, we need to enable people for the next question, not the one that that's front of mind right now. It seems to me like it's just like the old adage, like teaching someone to fish rather than fishing for them. If you're successful as a platform, you're, you're actually teaching them how to do that, not just like doing it for them. It seems like if I've got it right. Absolutely. And I mean, if we're talking about like also hiding complexity, I would say that, you know, and and then when do you show complexities? I would say this is something that like 
is probably the biggest challenge of my life. As somebody who very much, very much thinks in terms of data and statistics, it's just kind of how my my brain works. Translating what that means to somebody who like honestly sees numbers on a screen and goes, ugh is a challenge and and ultimately like what's important like there is a certain amount of complexity that is terrifying to people but also a certain amount of complexity that's like deeply necessary to understand how we got here because ultimately we're moving toward a world where we have more product and more machine learning enabled all of the things and if we don't know how things are being decisioned which is that complexity like we run the risk of making decisions that are not awesome but at the same time We have to make things accessible enough, but difficult enough to really inspire that appreciation. And it's an impossible balance to to strike sometimes, but one that I think in general, there are a number of people who are, are seeking at this point. I like that. I like enabling people versus kind of answering the question in front of them. I think completely encapsulates it. Absolutely. Recurrent neural networks are, you know, quite complex and maybe not everybody needs to understand, but we do need to understand the implications of using unsupervised machine learning methods versus, you know, something that humans have a greater hand in decisioning, if that makes sense. So I want to shift gears because we we would be remiss to talk about data and not talk about bias in data in AI. You may have heard that there's some issues regards to that. I would love to hear your thoughts being in it. It's something Anna and I read about. We've covered a little bit on the show. Um, and I think being in, in tech, you should at least be aware of this. As data is getting more powerful and the tools are getting more powerful, it's, it's clearly becoming a bigger thing. So I would love to understand how you conceive of bias in data, because it's unavoidable in any level, whether it's, you know, economic or social, or it's, you know, something just small, like bias on the lens that you're looking at something through. So how do you handle that in your work? Yes, this is both one of my favorite topics. I I think that with the complexity that, that Anna brought up a little bit ago, right? Like there is this almost kind of giving up of agency that happens sometimes when we have machine learning models, when we have AI um, decisioning things. We're like, oh, obviously the data is unimpeachable. But the thing that people forget is that the data is always what somebody has bothered to decide to collect. The data is what people have made decisions around just in terms of collections, let alone in terms of how it's processed, the models that are used, uh, what good enough is, et cetera, right? I, I spent my holiday break reading a lot of academic papers on a lot of different subjects. And one of the things that I was digging into was um, stance detection. And I've spent a lot of time digging into various sentiment models, various ways of detecting emotion and or how people feel about certain subject matters. But one of the things that would blow your mind is that most sentiment models, most of the models that you are using all the time to say, oh, yes, like people feel very positively about this or people feel very negatively about this, were trained on either Yelp reviews and or like user-generated movie reviews. So anything trained on that data and, and a corpus made of that data is going to reflect that in some way, shape, or form. And so it may not be particularly extensible to different use cases to other things. And so you you have to think about like what you're using, what you're collecting to power these models in the first place, because they are absolutely a reflection of, of what you put into them. 
machines basically, computers basically just decision on things over and over and over again at scale that we feed to them. So one of the papers that I read over the holiday break about stance detection was cutting edge in terms of how they are understanding how people feel about certain subjects like abortion. Are you pro-choice? Are you pro-life? Like, and what certain, you know, what specific things are important to you either way. However, the data that they used to power the models that they built was uh, mostly grad students who are in tech, disproportionately atheists, disproportionately educated when you like an affluent when compared to the general public. And so when you have trained a model based on this data, it may or may not decision in ways that betray how it was trained in the first place and usually does. And I would say that the thing that's most important to me is I just assume out of the gate that the data that we've collected is biased to begin with. And my job from there is to counter it when I can and to be deeply aware of it at every step in the decision-making process. I say a lot, but like, I don't really teach young data scientists how to do data science. A lot of times, like they came out of school much more, like they came out of school much more recently than I did. They are more up to date on some of the like cutting edge of quantitative methods in ways that like I will learn from them. And that's amazing. However, I am extremely good at understanding how product works and I'm extremely good at understanding ethical decision-making. And so what I teach them more than anything is ethics and like when they're actually making choices that could impact or will impact how biased or unbiased a model is. We build models all the time to identify certain trends in the world and track the ways that they're changing and showing up. That trend, that model is going to be a reflection of the person who collected the data that went into it. So if we had, you know, two 22-year-olds who are fresh out of college who contributed to, you know, to the core core of powering these models and, you know, just kids are never on the horizon for them, you know, in this this family trend model that that we're building out. We might miss whole segments of ways that this thing is showing up in the world because it failed to occur to the people building the models that that this was something that they should consider. And that's that's really the thing that I, I as best as possible, try to, to keep front of mind. Yeah, I heard you say that you teach data scientists when they're making choices. And I don't know if I misinterpreted or if I got this right. Cause what I, what I heard from you is, was this idea that you're letting them know when they're making a choice, meaning like sometimes choices are very passive. Like you don't realize you made a choice or like with bias, it's almost like unconscious. Right. But I don't know if that's how I heard you, but in any case, I am trying to think of now I'm imagining how you talk to data scientists and help them understand how they make choices, accounting for the biases. And then um, I just feel like there's this endless loop where person who created the model has a bias. So somebody else has to help that person correct their bias who also brings bias. So it's like this infinite, like never ending, like people looking at it. So how do you create some realistic guardrails or like, I don't know, other product people that are trying to make more ethical or even just less biased decisions in their, their data science for what they're doing? Yeah, I think that that's when ultimately what we're doing at all points when we're building product is saying, okay, so what's the ideal state and what's the best that we can do right now, given our resources and given the time constraints that we have. And so it's just a constant conversation about those things. 
we understand where we're cutting corners now or you know where the potential biases are we'll we'll see how that bears out for sure and we understand that like this is going to be iterative and we're going to do the best that we can right now and without a doubt we are probably going to be back at this again in a few months or in a year because this was imperfect and we'll continue seeking better we'll continue you know to seek equity, because there will be things that we cannot even foresee that are ramifications of the decisions that we've made now. But we'll try to understand as best we can in the moment, make the best decision that we can, because you're right, it could be an infinite loop and we do have deadlines. So how do we also make sure that we document some of this so that future us can can kind of reflect back on what present us knew and use that as additional fodder to kind of make the future improvements, the iterative improvements that we want to, that we need to. This is one of the few cases we've had, Anna, where we have a product that is almost inherently complex. So it's not just like easy to use. Anybody can use it. PLG all the way. It's like dealing with things that are complex and sort of owning that. What stood out to you in her discussion about building a, a, a platform supporting complexity? Yeah, I really thought her approach was very interesting because again, like you said, it's this is a complex product that can do extremely complex things. And she talked a lot about kind of the, the data model and it like takes things in. And I, I can't even, she said data like at some point, which I was very impressed by. But I think what I really took away from this is that, yeah, like you said, it's they're not building a product that anyone could just show up and use. This is a specifically complex product because it does really complex things. And they're really leaning into saying, if you're going to use this product, we're going to train you how to think differently so you can use this product in the right way, which is a very, very different. I think you and I even were trained very much around the idea of mental models of what is the user's mental model. And then that's how you match the system to it. But here she's saying the system has to do things a certain way. Now, user, we are going to kind of give you a new mental model so that you can work with the system. And it's, I know everything, everything is cyclical, but it's like going back to like kind of having people conform to systems as opposed to systems conforming to people. But it's like in here, what I think is also great that she called out is that they have to really balance that complexity with, uh, so she said balance the, the terrifying complexity because she said there's an amount of complexity that will scare people with that complexity that will help you actually make good decisions. So in order for people to make good decisions using this product, they have to use it in a complex way. And they're just leaning into that rather than dumbing it down, I guess, for lack of a better term. Yeah. And I like that she called out with the, even the training. It's less about training on the actual how to use the product, but it's more training on how to really use the tool to think about information. So like to your point of coming full circle, when, when I started my career with software, it's like training to use complex software. And you would have these manuals, like I click this button and it does that. That's not what she's talking about here. When she says complex, like it's still easy to use. She's needing you to understand what the product is doing for you. Cause that's ultimately what you walk away with. So I wonder what the impression they'd want from a user from using their product. Like it's probably less like, oh, it was so easy to use, but I bet they go for people saying like, oh, I, I, I figured out how to understand things. So you know what I mean? It's almost like a second level or something that, that they're hoping for. Be my guess. I agree. And I, I think it also ties to this idea of if you make a product so simple that anybody can use it, people probably, people may not get that sense of satisfaction of be, being able to do something that's kind of hard. Because there is that that thing where like when you build, I don't know, when I build a really complex air table, like I feel so good about myself. I feel, you know, 
I've done something that's challenging, but the outcome is like, I got to a place I needed to be. So I do think there is also this value there of like, you're almost like you're, you're teaching people like a trade in some way. And they're, 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 they are more powerful because of it. Speaking of teaching people, I, I want to call out one of the, the, the last things we talked about, which was just the idea. Well, we started by asking about bias, which got us away from what I think is being talked about a lot right now, which is great about bias and data and all that. But she went one level deeper, which was the awareness that the data models that you run experiments on or anything on is where the bias starts. And I thought that was really good. And what I want to call out for our listeners is the bias isn't just in what the data can be doing and ignoring different data points. It's actually how you create the model that everything's based on. Yeah, that idea that she talked about how, you know, training an algorithm on certain data will make it do certain things. And the idea that the data you decide to train your algorithm on, that is a that's a choice that you're making. And I think that, you know, we talked about that with when it comes to thinking about product too and how people could, what people could really take away from this conversation. And it's that like so much of what you do in, a, in product design in product management and building products is a choice, whether you know it's a choice or not. One idea that, that I thought of like a very simple idea was when you, you know, you choose a gender dropdown, you know, if you choose a gender, if you put it in your product and you make it just male and female, like you're making a choice there, a very conscious decision that might exclude certain people and not having other people as part of that decision. You just have people who wouldn't even think about that. They wouldn't even think that's the choice. It seems so obvious to some people. Well, and you could, I guess if we stick with that one, you could say, well, we decided that because we looked at the data and like hundred percent of people in the past only selected male or female. So that's why we included those, but this is a really dumb example, but it proves out what she's, her point was, is that well, what was your data source? What were the options they were given? If it was only male or female, of course they're not going to have it. So, and she had that that example of of the Yelp reviews and movie reviews feeding a lot of data models, and it it really got me realizing I had never considered the source of the models that a lot of things are built on. And there's a lot of publicly available data. You know, some of we're not talking about data that's like uh, you know zip codes and things like those are all factual data that doesn't change, but. If you even think about socioeconomic data or political polling data, they're all using samples, which are going to have biases. And even in your own product work, like if you're going to talk to users, you're going to get data that will be biased in one way. And I think this is where I really want to call out for our listeners is that even in that scenario, if you have say, you know, a thousand users and you're getting reports back from them it's worth paying attention to the type of people that are reporting at all and what is unique about them rather than just taking that data output and doing something because that might yield some biases or a particular type of user group that's skewing your data in a way that you may not otherwise realize. Yeah, I think I've called this out before on this podcast, but Weapons of Math Destruction is this book written a couple of years ago and it's eye-opening about the algorithms that run our life and the the bias that's built into them. It's, it's such a good read. It's a scary read, but it's a great read. I highly recommend it. Well, yeah. And that's a great book. It's and it's in it remind our listeners, like those are high level, like social, political, all of those things. But what we're talking about even has just really small scale implications. If you're using data science in your product, anything you're getting is going to have bias and it can skew it in one way. Maybe it's not deep-seated that's, you know, sociocultural or something like that. Maybe it's something that's skewing the way you're judging your conversion rates because you only look at a particular segment of your audience. So 
the point being, I think talking to her, she's got a lot of knowledge in this area, but there's some really just small ways that it can even start to impact your own work with data and in product. Join us next week. Ann and I will wrap up the series on data science and bring together all of the great insights you've heard in one episode. Thanks for listening to the show this week. If you're looking for more resources on how to design, build, market, and sell better products, then head over to betterproduct.community to join, well, the community. And as always, we're curious, what does better product mean to you? Shoot us an email at podcasts at innovatemap.com.